Welcome to the Grace and Common Podcast, uh, Season 2, a podcast between four friends, all theologians from four different countries on three continents. My name is James Eglinton. I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Joined today by my friends Grace Utanto, originally of Indonesia and now teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., Corey Brock, originally from the United States, now a pastor at St. Columba's Free Church in Edinburgh in Scotland, and Marinus de Jong, a pastor from the Netherlands from the Oosterpark Kerk in Amsterdam, and also of the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute. Okay, so it's great to have the whole band back together after the summer months. Good to see you all as well. Great to be back. Yeah, so how is everyone? Rested, refreshed? Oh, roughly, you know, just taking care of the six-month-old, but also doing a little bit of reading here and there. But I've missed uh, having this conversation about neo-Calvinism with all of you. So what have you each been reading over the summer? Um, do you do you guys take a lot of time off reading over the summer break and, and just switch off? Or, or do you unstoppable bookworms? I've been I've been reading like in between like children running around the house, but I've, I've got some reading done. So I mentioned two things briefly. One is I reread uh, the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Um, I've, nice. I haven't. So there's this new series coming out on Amazon, as you probably know. Also, yeah, which may be very bad, but I don't know. I hope it's going to be good. Um, so I think the last time I read it was like ten years ago, um, and it was just I, I was surprised how I was hooked again and really enjoyed it and. So much to think about, also theologically. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, and I read another Catholic book. I mean, talking as a Catholic, um, and that's a book by a Jesuit, J James Martin. He's very well known in the U.S. I think. Um, not so much here. His book about prayer. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I picked it up in a bookstore. Um, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Um, learned a lot from the Jesuit tradition there. So, Roman Catholic. Are you reading? Are you reading Lord of the Rings in English or in Dutch translation? Uh, I've done both, but this time in Dutch. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I've, I started reading Lord of the Rings this summer. And when I say started, I mean for the first time. And I'm 40 years old now. Um, so my kids are, and my wife as well, are all huge Tolkien fans. And my, um, my oldest child just kind of cracked he couldn't handle it that i still hadn't read this you know his absolute favorite book so he like he physically put it down in front of me one day in, in the in the summer holidays and said you have to read this like it's not an option anymore so um so i'm about halfway through and and thoroughly enjoying it too um and i'm reading it alongside uh, counterbalance to marinas um abraham kuyper so some really good protestant theology um, i have this long-term reading project to go through all of kuyper's collected works in public theology and uh, so I'm, I'm I'm reading through pro pro reggae at the moment, um, volume one, which interestingly is really fascinating companion reading. I think anyway to Lord of the Rings. Um, mm. So I've I've been developing this theory that Tom Bombadil is actually I I don't think that he was inspired by um, by Kuiper and creating the Tom Bombadil character, but I think that Tom Bombadil is extremely like Abraham Kuiper's quite distinct vision of Adam pre fall as this figure who goes around this world of terrifying nature and who's not afraid of it at all and who just seems to be, um, you know, no, no, nothing ever poses danger to him. Um, so I, I, they, they work quite well together as, as two things to read. I've also read uh, The Fellowship in Two Towers the past few months as well, but um, reread. Uh, but the best book I read this summer was Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. So I've been meaning to try to read that for years and years and had never gotten to it seems to be, I see it all, all over the place, uh, and finally did. And it was really enjoyable, uh, you know, classic stoic text, but, um, really interesting ethic, ethical philosophy. So that was the, that was the best thing I read this summer. I have not read any of the Lord of the Rings, but I've enjoyed the movies very much. So I am, uh, merely a pleb as compared to all of you literary giants in this room here. Um, but I think the summer, the main reading, and Corey, you and I have joined together in this work, is just the, the chapters for our TNT Clark Handbook to Neo-Calvinism, which have kept yeah. me busy when every time I had a spare time in the mornings or something like that, that's what I would be editing and reading through. I've enjoyed the chapters very much. 
But right before the semester started, I try to go back into material and theology proper and doctrine of God, because I have to teach that and I have to keep myself a pace on these discussions. And so I've been reading up on the particular issue of modal collapse, <laughs> the idea that if God is identical to his acts and everything that is in God is identical to God himself, well, if he chooses to create the world, then is he identical to his decision to yeah. create the world? Would that make creation necessary given divine simplicity? So it's a very thorny issue, but I've read some medievalists on the issue and some analytic philosophers, and, and they've been really, really helpful in, in helping me navigate through the issue. So the answer, if we, the answer, Gray, is no. The answer is no. That's right. Well, that's fair enough. And we can definitely have a conversation about that maybe in the future. So the rest of us um, read to let our minds switch off a bit over the holidays, uh, and Gray just cranks it up to 11. So uh, <laughs> respect, respect. So one other piece of news uh, for for listeners is at the end of season one, we had a book giveaway contest. So thank you to everyone who submitted um, suggestions for topics for season two. So there's some really great ideas there, and there are things that we do plan to discuss at different points over season two. But we have a winner as well. So that's um, Mike Lamoni on Twitter. So congratulations, Mike. Um, so your suggestion was to have an episode on neo-Calvinism and idealist philosophy. So that's something that we're that we're looking into discussing at some point in season two. So uh, some copies of the Schilder Reader and. Herman Bavinck's Christian worldview are making their way to you. So for season two, episode one, um, our topic is neo-Calvinism and the secular. So when I think about secularization or that whole field of terms, secularism, the word secular itself, um, I think, I guess the best lead into that that strikes me is from Charles Taylor's classic work, A Secular Age where he begins by setting out that the that these terms all revolving around the word secular are used in different ways by different people um a lot of people use it as a way of describing the assumption that um that society has simply outgrown god and that um, religious belief is just a thing of the past that and um, people can't see this uh, um they're listening to the podcast but you know doing um uh, scare quotes with my fingers you know that we have all outgrown god and that secular that that we're all secular now so it's a kind of progressive view of of history of, of society and that that we're now in a secular phase as opposed to an earlier religious phase um but then Taylor moves on to talk about a different way to understand the term secular, which is much more nuanced than interesting. And um, and it's the the idea that if you compare a medieval um, European to, let's say, a 20th, uh, early 21st century European or Westerner, um, one of the striking differences between the two is that for a medieval European to participate in society at all, um, entailed participation in in religion it entailed belief in god and if you were to choose not to believe then you become a very difficult person to accommodate within society so participation in society and um and religion or religious belief or affiliation are like two sides of the same coin Whereas if you, you know, fast forward in history to the 20th century or, or our own time in the early 21st century, um, participation in society and any kind of active, intentional religious um, affiliation or identification or confession, those two are quite separate issues. So you could never make any effort to profess anything in particular about having a religious identity or religious beliefs. And you can participate in wider society just fine. And then so it's so the Western world has been subject to a process that Taylor calls secularization that brings it from that earlier point to the later point. Um, so secularization then is um, the is a kind of way of reimagining how you participate in society in relation to religious belief. And that doesn't mean in Taylor's analysis that we have therefore all outgrown religion. So, you know, he'll use the example of communist era Poland, for example, um, where you have a very firm distinction between church and state or between Christianity and any kind of organized uh, society. Um, and yet at the same time in, in communist Poland, um, you know, you have 
really high rates of participation in the Roman Catholic Church, for example. So just separating the two and making religion an optional extra for participation in public life doesn't mean that people cease to be religious, but it's this issue of it being optional rather than obligatory. And that's what's really interesting about Taylor's analysis that then helps us make a lot of sense of Western cultures nowadays. So um, what I'm trying to teach uh, different takes on secularization theory to my students, I give them this example just to highlight the different ways that secular culture functions in, let's say, France, where you have the history of the French Revolution, you have laïcité as a very distinct French take on how to be secular. Um, the UK, you know, which so if you think about England, they have an established church in the Church of England, um, and you have long-standing Presbyterian churches in Scotland and so on. Um, and then also the United States, where you have a formal separation of church and state. So I always ask my students to imagine that they're watching some big awards ceremony, like if it's the Oscars or the British Awards in the UK, if that's even a thing. I don't know. I've followed it for a long time. And, you know, some like whatever the French equivalent is, where you're winning some big award for being in a movie or making music or something like that. Um, would it shock you at all to tune into the American awards ceremony and, you know, the person who wins stands up and says, I want to thank my producer and, you know, my parents for supporting me and my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot of Americans wouldn't find that weird at all to have a kind of public religious expression. Okay, You can do that, even though there's separation of church and state and it's a secular, one kind of secular culture. If you were to do that in the UK, like if you were to win some, you know, a BAFTA or something like that and stand up and thank, you know, your agent and your producer and also your Lord Jesus Christ, most British people would find that a bit weird. Um, it would be seen as quite an eccentric thing to do, you know, to be publicly religious like that. And people might be a bit uncomfortable with it, but, you know, you you could do that and you would just be seen as kind of eccentric um but there are other spaces in society where you can be it's more kind of normal to be publicly religious if you were to go to france and make a public statement like that a lot of people would think that there's something wrong with you and you probably shouldn't even say that kind of stuff in private either uh, because it's a completely different history of secularization so if you're talking about what it means to be secular what secular culture is you like there's not really one thing um there are lots of different ways that this is developed in different cultures. So this kind of maps onto neo-Calvinism and that neo-Calvinists tend to think a lot about pluralism. It's a movement that develops in the late 19th century as a response to the French Revolution, which is a distinct kind of way of imagining secularization. Um, and then that creates you know, interesting um, discussions within the original neo-Calvinists about um, um, plural democracy, about how you live within society uh, alongside people who hold different religious confessions. Um, and there's um, so there's just there's a whole kind of history there within the tradition because of when it develops. Um, and uh, so that's what we're going to be um, talking about today. Uh, one of the differences between neo-Calvinism and paleo-Calvinism, like 16th century Calvinism, is um, that I guess I've, I've yet to, and I'm sure I said this as well in a previous episode in season one, I've yet to come across a Calvinist today, not a neo-Calvinist, but just a general Calvinist who, you know, thinks that what happened to Servetus in 16th century Geneva should still happen today, that it should be, you know, a, a capital offense not to be Trinitarian. So something, you know, we, we live in different times anyway, and there you're talking about having been secularized in different ways, and how you think about public space and religious difference and so on. Um, but neo-Calvinism is a really interesting tradition because it's actually thought really hard about this in, in a concrete historical context. Um, so our discussion topic for today then. One question I have for, that I'd like to hear you guys discuss, uh, maybe especially Marinus in the Dutch context, is you quite often hear critics of neo-Calvinism talk about how Abraham Kuyper made the Netherlands a secular country. What do you guys think of that? In, in my Dutch context, like on the theological scene, of course, it's not really something people discuss in the, in the, in the churches, let alone the street. But um, yeah, there is, this, there is this, this idea, which is very, um, which is almost like a trope for some people um, <clears throat> who say that like Abraham Kuyper, because he kind of emancipated um, a lot, like a lot of the reformed people um 
and started to emphasize cultural engagement, connected uh, the church to politics as, and, and made like reformed faith into a political party. It's not what he did, but it's what people like view what he did. Um, that all that, that especially like the, that his emphasis on outward religion, like action, deeds, doing things, cultural engagement, that that has made, um, has been like at least enhanced or maybe even responsible for, um, for secularization in the 1960s um, or after the war, starting in the 50s, um, going on to, until now. Um, well, and th this is really something that, that sticks. Um, it, I mean, even recently, like last week's on Twitter, there were people like um, saying this again, that like, yeah, we should like, stay away from new Calvinist emphasis because uh, that will only lead to secularization. Um, and what they point at is that like, there's just, a, they kind of point at, I think, Kuiper's opposition or new Calvin's opposition to any kind of dualism. Um, they had to really try to, see life as one, um, which is really maybe the main thrust of Neo-Calvinism to do that, um, as something dangerous um, that you kind of need, and nobody is going to say out loud that they need some kind of dualism, at least most people don't. Um, but I want to say we need a kind of dualism um, because otherwise um, this, is, this is going to have a secularizing effect. Um, <clears throat> well, and well, we can talk about. It. I will be looking forward to hear how you how you view this, like this Dutch, um, because I think it's it's mostly a Dutch thing. Although maybe in the United, the American context, you also hear this every now and then. People saying common grace, the secularizing tendencies. Um, of course, someone like Schilder has also said it. Um, he also warned against secularizing effects, not against Kuiper per se, but at least the way common grace was used. Um, but then I think it's not. Um, I, I, I kind of tend to agree with, with Schilder that it's it's not inherent in the ID, but there are like potential tendencies within the ID that can um, lead to secularization. Yeah, when when you use example, for example, the the idea of common grace to again well to, to to again have a kind of dualism between particular and common grace. It's of course far from what any of New Covenants intend, but it's 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 something some some suggestion that that that. Um, where, where it could lead to. Um, and then a final note also on why this is historically is problematic um, is because at the same time, the Roman Catholics here in the Netherlands um, secularized as well. Um, secularizing in the sense that people stopped going to church, stopped seeing the priests, uh, stopped baptizing the children. And even uh, they did a lot faster than uh, what happened in the Protestant North of the Netherlands. So you need more to account for what happened in, in the Dutch context and blaming everyone Kuiper. Um, but yeah, I think there's, I, I understand that people say it and there's, they, they are not completely off with, uh, with their critique, but it's, it's just not, not enough. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hear what you think about it. Yeah, and I think another angle to take a look at it too is that, you know, I've been reading Ari Molendijk's recent work, Dutch Protestant Theology and in uh, the context of 19th century modern Netherlands. It just came out in OUP uh, this earlier this year. And, and one of the things he says is that one of the ways in which Kuiper is distinguished from both Orthodox folks and also modern folks is that both Orthodox conservatives and modern theologians and philosophers in the 19th century were still seeking to establish a kind of Protestant nation. Modern theologians said that Protestantism has to be fused together with modern ideals. And that's why the Dutch church the, the established church has to be a modernized sort of church, right? Whereas conservatives, and, and he would point to folks like Isaac de Costa, uh, conservatives would actually say that, um, yes, we still want this Dutch Protestant nation and this sort of national identity as established through the church, but it has to be a very conservative sort of position. And there is an antithesis between orthodoxy and modernity. And one of the reasons why Kuiper was attacked by both sides of, of moderns and orthodox people is because he said, no, the church has to be free from the state. The church has to be emancipated from the state, has to be liberated by the, uh, from the state. And therefore, we have to appeal to the freedom of conscience, religious liberty, to practice our own church confession, free from the state, and so on. And, and, and what, what um, uh, Molendijk argued is that Kuiper is actually 
taking modern ideals in a sense, uh, not the not the not the modern theologians, but modern ide ideals in the sense of modernity, uh, away from theology, and saying that Calvinism, as it turns out, provides for a stronger foundation for these modern ideals of freedom, of liberty, of conscience, and so therefore Kuiper made it so that the church had to be free from the state, and 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 Kuiper's decision to reform the churches, therefore, is actually at the same time furthering modern ideals. Uh, Mollendijk, even in one passage, says very provocatively that Kuiper was rereading neo-Calvinism through a modern lens, if that makes sense. So uh, I wonder what you all think about that. That's, that's perhaps behind this critique of modernity, or at least the secularization of, 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 of the Netherlands by Abraham Kuyper, because he's using the same language of these modern theologians or modern philosophy, but at the same time saying that Calvinism furthers those ideals without wanting an established church, if that makes sense. So this is an important discussion because, and the question you just asked is important because right now, one of the big debates amongst Protestant theologians is regarding establishmentarianism and disestablishmentarianism. And, you know, for, for instance, the London Lyceum podcast recently hosted a, a two-hour roundtable on this issue that's worth listening to. And, and some of the people were Brad Littlejohn and, and um, Jonathan Lehman and a couple other guys. Uh, and really, the choices that are being laid out are, are do we return to a, a classical establishment or a more Baptistic uh, Christian liberty model of total disestablishment. So the U.S. versus classical Europe kind of choice dichotomy. And I don't, I don't know, or at least I haven't seen where the neo-Calvinist uh, idea, the Kuyperian idea, has been put forward as perhaps a middle way, um, an option between options. And this is getting back around to your question, Gray. I mean. In my mind, I see in Kuiper a sort of disestablishmentarian establishmentarianism. Um, there we go. Um, and I'm wrestling with this because I'm in an establishment tradition here now in Scotland, and we're wrestling with what that question means, even though I'm in a free church, free from the establishment, uh, yet that nevertheless, by its principles, seeks establishment in its con constitutional documents. And so what does that really mean? And so uh, maybe this is me just trying to find a way to justi justify my confessional establishmentarianism, but I think there's a way of talking about neo-Calvinism as disestablishment establishmentarian, uh, and, and that's more of a, and, and I don't have this well, well worked out, but is there a sense in which while neo-Calvinist theology, political theology uh, wants a church disestablished from the state, you know, the institutional church disestablished from the state. Nevertheless, by a movement of the gospel, uh, it wants the organic church to thrive in such a way that the king confesses Christ to the point where there can even be a uh, monarchical confession of faith like the Apostles' Creed adopted. So there could be um, a Christian confession without an established church as an option. I mean, is that an end goal? What is the end goal, if you will, of a neo-Calvinist political theology? What is victory? What is success? Um, that, that would be the question, I think. Yeah. And just say one quick comment. It's so important to just reiterate what you said there, Corey, that I did listen to that and I did think to myself, wow, neo-Calvinism is not represented at all in this discussion. And it, it seems to be posing that sort of just, these are just two options that you have. But again, neo-Calvinism is actually a third option entirely. Yeah, so I wanted to add, when we're thinking through, um, what do you call it, Corey? A disestablished establishmentarianism. It's quite yeah. a mouthful. It's great. I, I mean, that yeah. that, like, that's got a great book title written all over it. Yeah. Um, so I think, at least as I understand the way that early neo-Calvinism developed in its political theology, and, I, and this is what I tried to set up a little bit earlier on by talking about how you know, the roots of neo-Calvinism are in the anti-revolutionary movements, and it's this, you know, Dutch political theological movement that's against the French Revolution, and the French Revolution has its own take on secularity, and and it's a form of secularization that um, that um, it kind of disestablishes the church um, from public life in a way that also disestablishes the public expression of religious faith. Um, so, 
you know that's why France has all of these very like idiosyncratic public debates around um you know like whether like a school teacher should be allowed to wear a cross or a hijab or something like that i mean and there are debates that carry over into quebec and and, and french-speaking canada but for the rest of the world they're just not really like you know they they're they're extremely french okay these debates and they have a lot to do with the fact that it has this distinct kind of secularization that makes the public expression of faith or um, a very a very difficult thing and actually precludes the public expression of any kind of religious faith um so that's the thing that the anti-revolutionaries are responding to and that they're against and then that grows into neo-calvinism which as you say um it goes along with the disestablishment of of the church uh, you know so for kuiper i guess his his guiding question on this is how could the state in a late modern historical context decide which is the true church um, like which state authority could you lean on who who is the arbiter of that and we all have to go along um, with whatever the state decides for us um, so for him it's inappropriate for the state to privilege any particular religious confessions therefore he's not an establishmentarian in, in an older sense so he's for disestablishment but he's not for disestablishing public religion in the way that the French did with their development of laicity. So instead you get some kind of disestablishment, establishmentarianism in Kuiper. So the church is disestablished, but what goes in its place is that you establish the basis for the public free confession and expression of, of, of religious beliefs. So then you get this ideal. I mean, that's why Kuiper really likes, or he really liked um american culture and why um the, the ideals that he found there where the state neither persecuted nor privileged any particular church or religion but instead just gave you the freedom to to profess whatever you you want um without without that kind of state interference um so he he really leaned towards that kind of an ideal and and i still think that then that's what shapes dutch culture so you know again to circle back to the kind of Points Marinus was making at the beginning there when I asked the question um, about secularization in the Netherlands and Kuiper. My own experience of moving to the Netherlands a hundred years after Kuiper and living there for three and a half years was that you know I came from Scotland, which has this establishment tradition. Um, I mean, it doesn't really mean anything in practice nowadays. And I think in a technical sense, the Church of Scotland is not the established church or the, or the state church. Um, so we don't, I don't think we have a state church in the technical sense in Scotland anymore, but you have all these Presbyterian denominations that notionally believe in the establishment principle and are trying to think through what that means. But, you know, the, I, I grew up, you know, feeling like a tiny Christian fish swimming in secular water everywhere I went. You know, there wasn't a Protestant school to go to a reformed school. There's not an option to read a Christian newspaper. Um, you, you, you just live in, in a mainstream and you're this you know lone christian minority within it and then move to the netherlands which people if you ask the average person on the street in scotland today like for their stereotype of dutch culture they'll say oh well, that's the most secular country in europe right and they'll talk about you know drugs and prostitution and euthanasia and all of those things and they think that that's what the whole country is like and they don't really realize that that's one part of dutch culture but you can also live in other parts of the netherlands where because of pillarization and its history socially there you can read, you have a choice of multiple high quality daily Christian newspapers. You've got multiple large Christian political parties that you can vote for. You can send your child to one of a choice of different Christian schools that are all state funded. Um, so my life moving from Scotland to living in Campen for three and a half years was, um, it was it was a profoundly unsecular place to live for, for me. If we're just thinking of, um, in that sense where, um, yeah, you, you just you, you the public expression of, of your faith becomes a very different thing. You have all these options all over the place um, for things that just don't exist where I came from. Um, uh, and uh, so in that regard, I guess the, the Netherlands is a, is a really it's a puzzling country to try and get to grips with from outside from for a lot of the rest of Western Europe, at least um, coming from the UK anyway because you just have all these possibilities and a history of structuring society that's so different to, to lots of other places where there are some parts of Dutch culture um, that are much more um, like aggressively secularized than, um, 
than we have in the UK. I think of like the medical sphere, for example. Um, but there are other parts of Dutch culture that are are like profoundly conservatively publicly um, religious um, as an expression of this kind of Kuiperian pluralism that that we don't really have at all in the UK anywhere. Yeah, yeah, I I, I totally agree with the way you um, the way you you've, you've you framed the Netherlands. Although I think that I mean it's it's and it's it's truly a legacy of Abraham Kuyper that we have that. I mean that you can you can draw direct lines from the political parties we have, the Christian ones, uh, the schools we have, and what is also interesting is that Muslims now start to discover what the, the Dutch system offers in this way, um, and well, there there hasn't really been a successful Islamic political party, but they've tried that, and there's there's room for it for it to do it, and and it's because of the Christian parties doing it, they can also do it. It's it's not a it's not a strange thing to do. The system is really fit for it. Um, and in terms of schools, it's common practice already. There's there's many state-funded Muslim schools also, which of course leads to suspicion from the the far right uh, because they're unhappy with that that that's happening. Um, but I think it shows the system is very it shows the system is very healthy and it's it's actually helpful to have a plural society. I mean, these schools have to play by state rules, but you can be have a religious school. So yeah, and something else to mention is that like the the. I, I discovered this very recently, but the Netherlands has um, has like done PR um, internationally to sell itself as a progressive country. So this is a cultivated image, um, and it's it was an extremely successful campaign because everybody sees the Netherlands as this very progressive country where you can um, smoke weed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is actually a cultivated image. Um, it is just used by to, to attract tourists. Um, so um, this can be traced back to a campaign in the 80s and the 90s where they cultivated this. Um, so I, I think that is what makes the confusion. And this is this is not much more than a cultivated image. I think you can fairly say that the Netherlands, because of the Caperian legacy, um, partly because of the Caperian legacy, is is just a different country in terms of how secularized it is. And another thing you can say that it's just less secular uh, than the, compared to the UK, and especially compared to France, which is really a whole different story, uh, as you just said, with the ICT concept, which is deeply rooted uh, in society. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that's part of an answer. So if we're talking about neo-Calvinist political theology, then yeah. is secular the right target term to use um so let me explain what i mean by that so you know abraham kuyper does not set out to have a vision of christian or christianity and politics for the dutch nation that is all about laicity in fact he's trying to do something very different so he's trying to establish a base for all of society where um you're not compelled um, by the state to you know be funneled in one particular direction um, but also the state doesn't have any power to um, to set limits on um, you know your, your religious expression um, or lack of expression um, so the term that gets used most I think by people who try and understand neo-calvinism is pluralism to talk about the goal you're trying to set up a state uh, or, or a model of society that that enables um, the reality of you know, people having different confessions and different worldviews and life views. So you're trying to have a view of the state that enables that to you know, coexist peacefully, but it's not an attempt to create, or, or the term that people, you know, I guess I, I don't read a lot of people um, writing about neo-Calvinism and society and politics who talk about it as a movement that aims for secularization, rather it aimed for pillarization, which to me seems conceptually quite different, or, plur or, or it aims to give the best Christian account for um, um, plurality in society, which I think takes us back a little bit to the, what, what Gray was saying as well, that, that for Kuiper, he thought that, that Christianity actually was the thing, and Calvinism above all, was the 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 best um had the best set of resources for um both grounding and um guiding and and um and enabling you know like diversity within society to flourish yeah yeah exactly right and so i think part of the implicit critique of that is that if you went with secularism as a worldview you can't actually get pluralism right 
That's one of Kuiper's strongest critiques of pluralism. I mean, sorry, uh, secularism. The secularism always tends towards uniformity. It stifles freedom. Why? Because you're not actually recognizing the importance of religious freedom and the religious instincts and intuitions of the human being, right? That everybody actually are religious creatures. And insofar as secularism is denying the importance of spirituality and the immaterial, um, they're actually going to enforce their own materialism and naturalism unto society and therefore tend towards uniformity. So despite their rhetoric about secularization and secularism as the grounds for freedom and plurality, they can't actually uh, um, get plurality for, from a secularist foundation. They need a Christian foundation. So I've, I've always wondered about the whole, you know, common grace leads to secularization sort of thesis because I'm not sure how that works because common grace is a profoundly theological category. And what we're saying is you can't live a free life and, and live the good life without the foundation of theology, a common grace, right? And, and to give a, a bit more bones to it, where we're saying that if you're living by common grace, you're living by borrowed capital. And this means that this, this gives a sort of impetus for Christians to say a secularization thesis or secularism as a post-Christian reality, we can actually discover the Christian roots of it. In other words, we, we, we can show because we are motivated by common grace that secularism rests on the borrowed foundations from Christianity. So common grace is not a baptizing of secular culture. It's an affirmation of the goodness of God in secular culture and therefore critiquing secular culture and saying that it's living on this borrowed old foundation of the Christian worldview. And we can actually show that historically. Here's why, you know, non-Christians in the secular world have different values than non-Christians in the pre-Christian world, right? So now what are the secular people's, you know, um, ethic? Well, it's tolerance, it's forgiveness, it's acceptance, right? Why are those the, 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 the virtues that they want and not say in... China or in other places in the pre-Christian world where I came from, um, the, the sort of context that I found, you know, it's not necessarily tolerance for freedom, but it's actually more so about honor and judgment and that kind of talk, right? So they're not going to prioritize authenticity, freedom, and religious liberty as much as the non-Christian in the West who's living on explicit post-Christian sort of realities. So by, by, by having a theology of common grace, there's this sanctified sort of impatience with talk of this is just common sense. Like we all want tolerance. We all want freedom. That's just rationality, right? That's just common rationality. But because of common grace, we're saying, no, that's not just common rationality. You've gotten that from somewhere. That's a theological foundation for that. So common grace to me is never just about a, a broad naked affirmation of the culture, but it's always implicit within it, a critique of the culture because it's forgetting the very resources on which it stands, if that makes sense. Yeah, I just wanted to add that everything we've said so far helps, I think, really combat this argument that has floated around for some time now that people often dismiss neo-Calvinism as a the theological uh, persuasion by, by suggesting we'll just look at the Netherlands today. You know, you guys have, have heard this argument. I've heard it from three or four different people, even in publication. And, you know, even what Marina said about how the image of the Netherlands is so thoroughly secular is a cultivated PR campaign. And it, this entire argument completely misses Taylor's basic thesis and the distinction that James was making earlier uh, there, there are very different ways to be secular between the Netherlands and France and the United States and the UK. They're all completely different models in some sense of what it means to be secular. And um, th there's a reason to look at the Netherlands and actually make the opposite argument that Kuiper, that Kuiperian, uh, the Kuiperian tradition and neo-Calvinist theology made a real difference in, in exactly the way it became secular um, and in how it's secular today. So yeah, I just, I just wanted to throw that out. I also wanted to piggyback Gray on a comment that you made just now, uh, something that we haven't really discussed yet, that neo-Calvinist neo theology or our, our reformed theology gives, uh, gives a foundation for understanding Taylor's thesis more thoroughly because Taylor's thesis uh, suggests that the issue in secularization is not the absence or decline of religion, but uh, the shift of a, a form of religion from organization of the populace around religious authority towards its privatization through the religion of authenticity, right? And so we would completely agree with that because 
the religion of authenticity of turning inward on, on self it remains religion. And why, why is it that Taylor can say uh, for us theologically, his argument, of course, is philosophical and sociological. Why is that? Well, we would say it's because of general revelation. It's because we are, uh, we are religious humans. We're, we're made in the image of God. And so I think that's another aspect that neo-Calvinism offers is a really robust theological framework for understanding actually why Taylor is so correct about these definitions of what secularity really is. So I have um, two questions. So one of them just piggybacks onto that, actually. So my first question is, is about navigating Western culture. And then my second is about Eastern cultures in terms of secular secularity. So on, on Western cultures, so the kind of people that I tend to come across in UK, UK culture who will talk about themselves as secular usually have Charles Taylor's first meaning that I refer to at the very beginning in mind. That to be secular means that we have all progressed. And it's actually, it's, um, I think that it's a kind of um, leftover uh, after effect of, of Hegel, actually, with Hegel's model of, of how history is guided from, you know, thesis to um, antithesis to synthesis. And it's this process of refinement of ideas. And it's the idea that civilization occurs. And then eventually, for Hegel, we will get to a point where through the elevated use of reason, we will all agree and the right way to to live will be evident to all of us. And that will also for, for Hegel until a point where we leave Christianity behind as well. So that's this kind of utopia of, of, of reason and rationality in the future that awaits. So I think that actually an, an after effect of that is uh, people that I come across in British culture will talk about themselves as secular who think that they've already got there and that they're um, kind of post-Christian um, irreligious world and life view is is the self-evidently correct one and if you haven't learned to see the world like that then you're just lagging behind somewhere and you've got to catch up and and so they use that kind of T Charles Taylor's first definition that to be secular is to have left religion behind and they they think that they've made that step ahead of us and the rest of us who are still religious should just learn to think more rigorously and then we'll see the world as they do um, so that 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 use is a live one in in UK culture. I think it's also pretty common in just in the Anglosphere in general. You also find it in North America. And I think you know I, I watch Dutch politics from a distance, and you can see that that kind of Anglophone way of thinking is also bleeding into Dutch culture as well, where secular progressives will talk about their particulars as universals. You know the way that we see things is just obvious for everyone. And, um, in that kind of Western cultural context, how much um, how much is it worth trying to defend concept number two of secularity um, and to push back and say, hey, you know, like this is like the National Secular Society in Britain tries to appropriate the word and say that this is, you know, Charles Taylor's first sense is, is the the normative one, and. Um, like, you don't have a, a national pluralist society alongside that, or a national secular is secular in the other sense that Charles Taylor lays out society to say, well, actually, you can have a secular view of society that promotes pluralism and that says that actually people should be completely free to express their religious beliefs and not treat those who think differently as you know retrograde or regressive. Um, it, it, how much is it worth um, investing? Do you guys think in trying to redeem like a concept like secularity in that kind of a Western context. And then my second question, just that I'll put it on, on the map and then we can return to it later. It's just, I, I want to talk about secularization, uh, you know, for example, in, in East Asian cultures, I'm really interested to hear what Gray has to say about that, given that it's this, you know, Western generated thing and uh, the West still seems to be trying to, to export it, um, you know, how, how how should Christians in, um, you know, in, in East Asian contexts, you know, try and think through what's produced from the West. But to go back to the first question, do you, do you guys think that it's worth investing in, you know, notion two of secularization? Uh, is there anything that's worth putting up a big fight to defend there from a neo-Calvinist perspective? Does the question even make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope if, if I get you right, I mean, I, th I think it's, well, because what what Gray just said about like what, what Kuiper predicted is that we need for a good and healthy pluralism we need Christian roots um, 
I, I agree there with Kuiper. I think we, we do need that. And as you as you say about the Netherlands, I think this is exactly what's happening. I mean, the it we are becoming less tolerant and less able to sustain a pluralist, a truly pluralist society. We all we just kind of want everyone to be like us. We want the Muslim to become this secular in the first sense person, and we want um, the Bible Belt Christians to become that. And we just and we want the um, the, the, the QAnon on people to be like that every everyone um has to line up and and i think eventually and this is i think what is also felt at the edges of society i mean we have we have now uh, farmers who are protesting it has been going on all summer um tractors blocking highways take, taking out the dutch flag taking it upside down which i think is a worrying symbol although i even though i understand why they are protesting um, so like at the, at the fringes, the margins of society, you see people responding because they feel that they, they get something because they like, they feel that they have to believe something that is made up, is made up somewhere in the Hague, uh, that everybody has to be like the people in Amsterdam are. And that's something that's going to, eventually, if you're really going to push that forward, that's going to destroy society. But that's, that's what eventually I think is going to happen if you really go on with that. Um, so yes, I think it's extremely important also for the 10% the of Muslims we have in our country who are Dutch citizens who live here um, and need also the room to, to profess their faith and to, to go to the mosque and to pray. So yeah, I think it's vital, just not only for, not only theologically, but just for the future of the country to, to, to oppose the, the, the first kind. It's just a, yeah, it's, it's a flawed way of seeing things and it has dangerous edges, I think. Yeah, and it comes to sort of Southeast Asian cultures that I'm aware about. I think one of the ways in which Christianity has been really helpful, especially this neo-Calvinist understanding of religious liberty and also the freedom of conscience, is that it restores the importance of individuality and authenticity for the for the individual. I think in Southeast Asian contexts, there's 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 sort of a readiness to accept enforced uniformity. But it's enforced uniformity in accordance with one's ethnicity and in accordance with one's family identity, if that makes sense. So if your family is in this particular business, then you are expected to just follow along with that business. If your ethnicity follows along with this religion generally, then we should also follow along with this religion. So one of the ways in which our ministry is, is challenged in, in Jakarta was that Lots of folks would say, we don't want to be Christians because we're native Indonesians and native Indonesians are Muslim, right? Or we don't want to be Christians because we're Chinese and Chinese people are Buddhists or Confucianists. And so why are you enforcing perhaps a, a Western European religion on us, if that makes sense? Because Christianity is so, 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 so associated with the West. And so lots of the work that we have to do is firstly disentangle Christianity from the West and say that this is a, a Catholic faith for everyone in the universal sense. And, and secondly, also to show that, you know, there's that, that ethnicity and religious identity are two distinct things. And if you take a look at Larry Hurtado's work, Destroyer of the Gods, that's one of the things he says about early Christianity. When early Christianity first started arising in the second century, one of the ways that they're controversial in the Greco-Roman context is that they were saying that you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian and you don't have to be a Gentile to be a Christian, right? Ethnicity and religious identity are two different things. You could be a Gentile and yet not worship the pagan gods and you could become a Christian and you could still be a Jew and yet worship the Christian God, right? So, so suddenly you have this bifurcation between religion on the one hand, which is voluntary identity and ethnicity on the other, which, is, which can still be your cultural identity, but it doesn't have to determine your religious identity. That was a very controversial introduction. And I find that in Asia, so much of the ministry involves that distinction. Hey, suddenly you can choose your faith in a voluntary basis and your, your ethnicity doesn't fatalistically determine what you're going to believe for the rest of your life. So I, when I see that kind of influence from Christianity, I see that as a very good thing. I see that suddenly as, you know, this is, there's freedom in what you decide to believe. You don't, you're, you don't, you're not just bound to follow your ancestors' footsteps in that respect. But I also see the mixed bag where that kind of individuality and freedom can be introduced not by Christian theological grounds, as you were saying, Marinus, by secular grounds in that post-Christian context. And, and this is really, really profound to me because when I am in the States, I hear people saying things like, 
Christianity is a white man's religion. It's heteronormativity for cisgender folks and things like that, right? And really what we want to get at is, is this idea that, you know, gender was fluid, sexuality is fluid. That's really a return to nature. That's common sense or something like that. But in Asia, heteronormativity, cisgender stuff and traditional norms, that's not Christian. That's just natural law for them, really. That's, that's traditional culture, right? That's everyone believes that, you know, from, from your Chinese uncle to your Indonesian, native Indonesian, you know, grandparents, whatever else, everybody believes that as a canopy. What they see as profoundly Western and dangerous is the idea of gender as fluid, that sexuality is determined by, and gender identity is determined by your own psychological feeling. That's very Western. So, you know, folks who are campaigning and talking about the positivity and affirming transgender rights, for example, in Asia, they're not saying we want to get away from the old patriarchy. No, they're saying we are, we have been Westernized. <laughs> and um, we are the ones who are wanting to get secular values injected into Asia so that transgender issues and values, it's not um, identified as, you know, the, 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 the natural thing going against the white man's religion. No, when we're, they're thinking about the white person's faith, they identify that with transgenderism, if that makes sense. Not with, well, not with a particular sort of natural law ethic, if that makes sense. So I think that's really important for us to understand because now neo-Calvinist has resources to understand that too, right? It's, it's recognizing that none of our beliefs are just rational intuitions. They're always coming from a culturally contingent sort of history of ideas. So I think that's one of the ways in which I'm, I've been wrestling with it. So there's a sense of secularization that we want to promote in a way, right? And that's uh, principle pluralism, uh, a, a pathway towards a, a pluralistic public order based on, for theological reasons, right? That the gospel is non-coercive. There's a secularism that we want to counter. And Gray, you were just talking about it. I mean, and like you said, in the Eastern um, in Eastern cultures, this ex expressive individualism, the age of authenticity, part of a Western secularization movement that that comes that moves East, perhaps, and like this is part of the secularization that that we want to counter. Right? I think my question for us, as we maybe start to draw things to a close, is how do you guys see um, the negative aspects of secu secularity, if I can use that word? Um, to, to be impacting even the local church, the people that um, are in your midst and the churches as, as theologians, as ministers for all of us and people that are listening. Um, but how do you see this as impacting even the people of God, the negative aspects of secularism? And then also uh, what are paths to renewal? Maybe one way to start a response to that is again, to go back to Charles Taylor. So one of, for me anyway, the, the really striking insights of a secular age by Taylor is, is that um, in, a, in secularized contexts, religious people and irreligious people have both been secularized. They've both been subjected to the same um, process of secularization, and it creates a problem that Taylor calls haunting imminence, um, which is a really interesting idea. Um, so it's bound up with with the sense that um, that you have this religious person in a secular society, secularized society, and that religious person has a creed that says this is not an optional extra. This is actually the tr truth, and you live or you tell yourself that you believe that, and you sincerely do, but at the same time you live alongside people who don't believe it and society enables them to get along just fine as well. And that's a very jarring experience that is so different to how pre-secularized Western people imagined, I, mean, I don't wanna to get too kind of bogged down in Taylor's vocabulary, but the, the conditions of belief have shifted a lot. Um, so that problem of, of, of haunting imminence also haunts, so for Taylor it haunts um, irreligious people who've been secularized in a different kind of way. Um, and that there's a lot that they that they long for that their religiosity cannot provide, um, so they're they're kind of dissatisfied in the space as well. So, 
that and that's just that that's a problem i think that religious people in western cultures who rail against everything to do with you know secular and other words associated with it um, don't realize that they themselves are also profoundly secularized and they're also subject to secularization and that's part of the worth of, of reading a book like a secular age by charles taylor it's you know a million pages long but it's a really superb analysis of the conditions of belief um, for people who live in secular and secular contexts but i think I guess to, maybe to get around to answering Corey's question there, one thing that I could throw out, interesting to know what, what you all think, is that you know, the, there is a kind of secularization that we want to combat, as you were saying, Corey, and that's, I think, you know, above all, it's the kind of French revolutionary laïcité to be secular is to outgrow religion or it's Hegel um, in, in that sense so that we've moved on from this and we don't need it. So that needs to be combated. But then I guess the question that I'm still chewing over is, is the positive thing that we want to set up, like, do we want to invest everything in a different thing that's also called secularity? Or is something like pluralism that's grounded in fundamentally a, a Christian way of imagining social space and the conditions of belief, the better option in helping people weigh up? Okay, so if, if you have a view of, of social space that enables, you know, the profession and expression of radically different beliefs, then that enables people to live within it alongside one another, um, you know, thinking critically but appreciatively as they weigh up how they then will choose to live. And it might be very different to your next door neighbor. Um, but I think that maybe this might have potential to help us think through the, the like that problem of haunting imminence, for example. Like it, it takes some of the um, like the subliminal wrestling with is this all just really relative and is this really the truth um it takes some of that away i think because it makes it a more self-critical and critical towards one's neighbors as well a kind of process yeah and i think it affects our preaching too i think so much of our preaching means showing people that the very norms that we take for granted are not self-evident uh, they often rest on unproved assumptions and just exposing that to folks and also at the same time showing how actually the norms that that are worth preserving have their roots in Christian ideas. And I think that's part of the persuasive aspect of our uh, of our preaching, that we need to show people that actually Christianity has better resources for the very things that you took for granted. Yeah, I agree. I agree with both of, both of you guys. I mean, an, I, one of the things I've seen in the local church, um, James, you were pointing out how we've all been secularized. I mean, one of the ways to me that that manifests is, is in creedal confessional agreement the nodding of the head during the sermon on a sunday but then life just not being organized around the gospel in in monday to saturday for most people i, I wonder if one of the most counter counter secular um activities of renewal for Christ, modern christians is just being deeply immersed in the spiritual disciplines in such a way that 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 Christ becomes the organizing principle of one's schedule rather than the demands of the public square. And that that is actually, when communities become organized around a rule of life where Christ is the center and that, that determines bedtimes and wake up times and reading schedules and prayer schedules and uh, Christian friendship, in, intensive Christian friendship and uh, shared spaces based on, on the fact of the gospel. I just wonder if that's one of the best reform hopes we have um, as a disruptive witness, as Alan Noble puts it. Um, so anyway, the, the, it's interesting. This is an open question for me. I'm thinking about this a lot and, and trying to figure out, as Gray was saying, how to preach and how to minister in a, in a context where the people of God are affected by some of the worst aspects of secularism all the time by osmosis and, and not even all, all, always aware of it. I mean, I even think to just comfort culture on the one hand is a huge aspect of a secular monster that's grabbing hold of, of the lives of so many Christians, just Netflix binging and, and all the way to the opposite side, which is um, kind of this modern stoic movement for grind and hustle culture, kind of a Joe Rogan-esque uh, work as hard as you can, work out as hard as you can. That's really the answer to nihilism. Those are the, in some ways the twin dangers of just slowly capturing Christians away from Christ being the center. Um, 
so anyway, these are these are interesting questions. Yeah. So just a quick comment um, on that. Here, here we we have uh, the historian um, in Groningen who is kind of a, also a professor of secularization. His name is Herman Paul. And um, he emphasizes how much like welfare and increased welfare and secularization go hand in hand, and how consumer culture uh, is is really um, what is what is really competing with religion, not responsible for. It. And I think on the ethical, um, like on, on on if you ask that ethical question, I think that's really an important part of it also, and uh, how um, yeah, how how are just everyday behavior, also people in church, in terms of how they are consumers and how that is so defining for their life, how they spend their time, consumers of Netflix, but also buying, um, just buying products, going shopping uh, online. Uh, it's, it's just, it's extremely dominant. And this is also, also something Jamie yeah. Smith has, has referred to, of course. So it's, it's not a completely, uh, it's, it's not a new idea, but I think it's, it really plays an important role in this, in this discussion of ethics and secularization. Yeah. Indeed. Guys, this has been great to discuss. I think part of the, the beauty of this particular podcast is having, it's not just a cheesy tagline, but having four friends from four really different countries, um, but all interacting with the same theological tradition does mean that you can have um, a really great conversation on something that's as um, ever present, but also as locally particular as the idea of the secular. So this has been great to discuss. Uh, thanks to listeners for tuning in to the first episode of season two. Um, if you like the podcast, please do give us a rating and subscribe with whatever podcast app you use. Um, but until the next time, this has been Grace in Common. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.